Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Chicago Sports HQ Chatter. Joined, as always, with Cole Little. This is Dustin Reese. And Cole, how has your week been since I've been gone and now finally getting back home? It's been good. Real good. How was your vacation? Other than me bringing some of the cold Wisconsin weather down with me for a couple of days, vacation was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> nice, nice relaxing time to just get away from some stuff. And now I'm kind of recharged and looking forward to getting really into what I like to call kind of the swing of sports because now you have baseball starting up and NBA and NHL are kind of in the stretch run heading into the postseason. You're going to have MLS starting up in a couple of weeks plus the NFL draft. So this is kind of like the busy time of the year where you deal with all the sports that everyone likes to follow. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Lots going on right now. And we'll start the show with uh, the NCAA tournament, which came to a conclusion on Monday night. Uh, there will be no undefeated champ this year as Gonzaga did fall to Baylor in the national championship game. And, it was a pretty one-sided affair. I know a lot of people were surprised at that score and surprised that Gonzaga didn't run the table, but I was one of the few people that picked Baylor, and I said this on the episode before we had our break, that prior to Baylor going on that three-week hiatus due to COVID, I think Baylor was the best team in the country, even better than Gonzaga. They had the better defense, and they probably had the best defense outside of maybe Virginia in the entire country. And once the NCAA tournament got underway, Baylor put their defense on full display, and they proved that record aside that they are the best team in the country. Yeah, for sure. And shout out to you for picking Baylor. Uh, I think you actually picked three of the um, four Final Four teams correctly, so that's pretty cool. Um, you know, I like a lot of people thought that Gonzaga would would do it, would complete the undefeated season. Um, certainly would have been a cool feat to see a team go undefeated, an undefeated national champion for the first time in over 40 years, um, and, and 45 years to be exact. Um, but it didn't come to fruition. And, yeah, I mean, Baylor, that has to be one of the most dominant Final Four performances ever. I mean, they blew out Houston and and blew out Gonzaga. Really, I mean, essentially two dominant wins back to back. Obviously, Gonzaga UCLA was you know one of the all time great NCAA tournament games and one of the best ever in the Final Four. So, um, for all intents and purposes, that had all the excitement of the of a national championship and yeah, it's like Gonzaga was just never really in it in the, in the natty and Baylor just came out firing and obviously took a big lead and um, Gonzaga somehow cut it to 10 at halftime, even though it felt like Baylor was in total control, but then Baylor controlled the second half and won comfortably. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned, you know, COVID, they had a COVID, Baylor obviously had a COVID situation that caused them to have to shut down for a couple weeks in February. And they hit a little bit of a bump in the road coming out of that. Um, I think barely won a game over lowly Iowa State at Iowa State and then lost at Kansas. 
quite handily and you know, I mean, if not for that COVID shutdown, I mean, who knows, they maybe would have put together an undefeated regular season. Um, obviously, they lost to Oklahoma State in the Big 12 tournament as well. But, yeah, I mean, you know, coming out of a major conference with only two losses heading into the NCAA tournament, that's obviously um, quite the accomplishment. And they just – they never really uh, – Baylor never really – you know, got talked about in the same way Gonzaga got talked about. But that was just a really talented team, great great defense, like you said, um, great ability to spread the ball around, great guard play. You know, Jared Butler, who was most outstanding player of the Final Four, he played very well. Um, Davion Mitchell did too. And, you know, it's a Baylor team that um, – you know, was a national championship contender, as was Gonzaga last season, and obviously didn't get a chance to play for it, um, and just seemed to arguably get better and, and older, um, better because they got older, that is, um, despite losing Freddie Gillespie, who was one of their key players in the 2019-2020 season. He graduated, and, and but they still seemed to get better heading into this season that just ended and um shout out to Scott Drew for winning the winning a national championship obviously he completed one of the most significant rebuilds in college sports history um the Baylor scandal that that rocked that program back in the early 2000s and and you know the program nearly honestly uh, probably barely avoided the death penalty and Scott Drew was brought in and and lo and behold ends up leading him to a national championship so congratulations to him and um, I guess since we were last on air um, Loyola's magical run their second magical run and reporter Moser came to an end um I mean, truth be told, in kind of ugly fashion, a Sweet 16 loss to Oregon State. It was just sort of a, a kind of a brutal defensive affair, kind of tough to watch. Not much fluid offense, but the Beavers were able to get it done and in Loyola season. And obviously, Porter Moser has since taken the Oklahoma head coaching job. But yeah, congratulations to Loyola on another great season and great run and you know hopefully they'll be able to keep things going um under a new head coach and uh and also as for illinois congratulations to them on a great season obviously um and we now know iodesumu is is going pro uh fresh off of winning the bob Cousy award is the nation's top point guard and he and Kofi Coburn were obviously uh, all Americans. So congrats to them on a great year as well. And one more thing on Gonzaga here before we switch topics, I kind of compare Gonzaga to like what the Milwaukee Bucks have been the last couple of years with Giannis, where they basically have dominated the regular season and have kind of steamrolled everybody in the regular season and then come playoff time, they just can't get over the hump and win the big game. And I've said this for 
probably the past decade and maybe even longer than that, going back to when Adam Morrison was even at Gonzaga, that Gonzaga to me is a regular season team because you look at the conference they play in and outside of St. Mary's, they really haven't had a consistent conference opponent that can contend with them. And I just feel I just feel that unless they get into a Pac-12 type of conference or a Power 5 conference where they're getting tested on a nightly basis, these are the kind of results that Gonzaga is going to have in the NCAA tournament because you look at the UCLA game in the Final Four. UCLA was an 11 seed that took Gonzaga to overtime and almost beat them. And no one's going to say UCLA is a terrible program because you know the history of UCLA. But if you look at the teams that Gonzaga played those first four games in the NCAA tournament, UCLA was probably the best game or the best team that they got despite being an 11 seed. And I think if Gonzaga goes through an entire season and kind of plays a full power five conference schedule where they're getting tested in and out. Yes. They might have six or seven losses at the end of the year, but I think they'd be better off getting in the NCAA tournament and making a run that way, as opposed to basically going in undefeated, not being tested a whole lot. And then finally, when the going gets tough, they don't know how to battle through it. Yeah. I'm not sure how much longer Gonzaga is going to ride it out in the West Coast Conference. Uh, obviously, a lot of other really good mid-majors have um, since gone on to join major conferences, or at least, or are at least in conferences like you know the American Athletic Conference or the Atlantic Ten that are maybe not necessarily part of the you know Big Six, so to speak, in college basketball, but are um, just a step below. Uh, but the West Coast Conference, I mean, yeah, you have Gonzaga and St. Mary's and BYU. And, you know, obviously. And BYU really hasn't been that good until this year either. BYU is pretty good on a regular basis. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a good, that that's actually something that helped uh, that conference was BYU joining. Um, but, I mean, still, it's only three teams, you know, so I'm, I'm, Trying to kind of agree with you here. I mean, you know, they don't – that isn't really obviously a major conference or really close to it, despite it being sort of an exception to the rule because they have, you know, three programs that are regularly in um, the NCAA tournament. And, yeah, I mean, BYU, I, I just looked. They haven't been to the NCAA tournament in six years, but obviously that's, you know, a program prior to that were in it. Uh, for a stretch pretty much every year and historically speaking that's a great program but um yeah i mean you know it's it's one of those things where you have to wonder if if all three of those teams or especially gonzaga and byu would look to maybe join another conference to be more competitive um but you know as for gonzaga i mean we kind of talked about this the last time we were on air I know they still get hated on because people think they don't perform well in the tournament, but I mean, you know, that's something that it used to really be the case, but since 2015, I mean, it hasn't really been as much of um, uh, the case there for Gonzaga. I mean, they've now been to four elite eights since 2015. Uh, And prior to that, they hadn't been to the elite eight since 99, which was their only previous elite eight. Been to two national championship games since 2017. 
And obviously you got to wonder how they would have done last year as well. Um, I believe they were number two in the country when the season got shut down. So that was a chance to get to the final four. So I don't know. I mean, it is one of those things that you have to wonder if they would be better set to compete for a national championship. If they weren't a major conference, I think the answer is, is yes. Um, but also at the same time, I mean, it's just sort of an exception to the rule because they have so much talent. And I mean, their, their talent seems to be ticking up, up and up. I mean, there was a time that Gonzaga wouldn't have been able to get a recruit like Jalen Suggs. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, if Mark Few can continue to bring in top tier talent like that, then I expect them to be national championship contenders pretty much on a yearly basis, even if they're still in the WCC. But, yeah, I mean, I do think it would behoove them to potentially join a big conference because, yeah, I mean, Baylor just just dominated them. And, you know, I mean, they played, uh, you know, and UCLA obviously took them to the wire, um, you know, and, and underdog UCLA team. So um, still a great team. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that team is remembered as, you know, coming as close as any team has since the 70s to, you know, going undefeated. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, it, I hope they won't be forgotten because um, obviously it was a kind of a weird season. I sort of wonder how the legacy of, you know, a lot of the college sports teams are going to be from this particular athletic year because of how strange it's been, you know, other than Alabama football. I mean, I'm sure they'll be remembered as being purely dominant. But, uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully that team won't be forgotten. And obviously it was a great team. And, you know, I, I expect they'll they'll lose a lot um, of talent heading into next season. But maybe they'll be back as a Final Four contender yet again. And like you were saying about how – um. Uh, Gonzaga just got that Suggs or whatever, and a couple of years ago they may have not been able to get recruits like that, and that's kind of why I think them moving to the Pac-12 or any bigger conference for that matter is really going to help them because if they go to a bigger conference, they're going to start getting these bigger recruits. And I use the Pac-12 for example, and you look at the amount of talent that the state of Washington has, the state of California, and like all those west West Coast states have. You put Gonzaga in that conference, well, now the recruits that are going to Washington University, Oregon University, UCLA are going to start going to Gonzaga now knowing that they are going to be in a Power 5 conference. And that right there, I think, is all Gonzaga would need to not only just become like a, they're already a premier team in the conference they're in right now, but I think adding more like four- and five-star recruits in like a heavy, heavily recruited area could make them just a dominant team in the Pac-12 right away. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. And, I mean, maybe they'll eventually, you know, reconsider and and um, <clears throat> or not necessarily reconsider, just consider something new and join a major conference. I mean, I don't know if it could feasibly be, you know, the Big East or because the Big East has, you know, the vast majority of the Big East schools are Catholic schools. Gonzaga is a Catholic school. Um, maybe that could mesh if, if Gonzaga and St. Mary's both, both 
uh, Catholic schools joined um, Big East, or maybe it was, you know, even if it was just like going up to the Mountain West, which is, you know, just kind of a step below, this a step below being a step or two below being a um, major conference, then, then maybe that could help. But yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I think that that's a good enough program where um, even if they are still in, um, you know, the West Coast Conference, Mark View's still going to get good recruits, great recruits, um, you know, and obviously he's in the in the midst of the best run he's been on in head coach, is head coach since the 2014-2015 season. I mean, you could argue they've been the best all-around – Gonzaga's been the best all-around program since then. Um, but, yeah, it'll just be, just be something to keep an eye on. You know, if next time conference expansion comes up, if that's something that comes into play. Um, you know, obviously Wichita State was a program that made a jump from the Missouri Valley to the AAC. You know, we've seen other programs jump to um, – I mean, and, and also on that note, um, you know, UConn left AAC to go back to the Big East. So, yeah, I mean, schools in basketball, I think, are constantly kind of looking at ways they can, you know, schools in smaller conferences are maybe considering ways they can uh, up their chances of getting good recruits and be more competitive come tournament time and be part of a bigger, better conference. So uh, maybe Gonzaga will eventually take that, make that jump. Exactly. And while the NCAA basketball season has officially come to a close, Major League Baseball now has finally gotten their regular season underway as the Cubs and the White Sox are on the verge of finishing their second series of the year. The Cubs are going to be finishing things up with the Brewers later on today before heading to Pittsburgh over the weekend while the White Sox close up with Seattle today and then get Kansas City to open their weekend series. I want to start with the Cubs first before we get into the White Sox. And a large portion, and I think it's 55 or 60% of the games they face or they play in April are against the Pirates and the Brewers. They face the Pirates six times. They face the Brewers nine times this month, and that's 15 of the 26 games they're going to have this month are just against those two opponents. We always talk about getting off to a fast start because getting off to a fast start obviously – helps you long-term, but when you have 72 games against your own division, when you get 15 of those games within that first four weeks of the season, you need to get off to a a fast start and you kind of need to assert yourselves right away to kind of show teams that we still are a team in this division to beat. We still are a team that can contend for the playoffs. And right now the Cubs are three and two. I mean, they took two or three from Pittsburgh, but it certainly was not, an easy series and it was probably a series that many people thought the Cubs would kind of breeze right through considering how bad a lot of experts predict the Pirates to be and yet they struggled against Pittsburgh. Uh, They had a good showing against Milwaukee on Monday but were held to just one hit last night against the Brewers and we're five games into the season already and I know five games is only a small sample size and everything like that but you can go back to the two playoff games last year. You can go back to the last couple of weeks of the season before that. And as things sit right now, the Chicago Cubs ranked dead last in offensive production. And 
the one area that we've talked about for the last couple of weeks is getting that offense back on track. And so far that offense is nowhere to be seen. They're just fortunate enough that they've been able to get some sacrifice flies here and there and a couple timely hits, but they got to start hitting the ball and start putting together some big innings. Otherwise, if this is what we expect to see in the offense all year, it's going to be a very long season. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, one of the uh, constant aggravations with the Cubs in recent seasons has been the living and dying by the home run ball. And I think we've maybe seen some of that so far this year. Um you know, even I mean, the win over the Brewers the other night. Obviously, they hit three home runs and only had two other hits. Uh, so you know, a reliance on home runs so far, and yeah, a couple games where they were just totally awful offensively. Opening day against the Pirates and Tuesday night's game against the Brewers. Um, of course, Monday night's game was the three home run game but um yeah in you know it's it's concerning i mean obviously they won two out of three over the pirates but you know the pirates have a chance to be historically bad this year i mean especially now that cabrian Cabrian hayes is already hurt so yeah i mean they could be legitimately historically bad in terms of the losses they rack up so that's not really saying a whole lot um yeah, so far at the time of recording this, uh, split the first two games against the Brewers and now the rubber match coming up. And, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it is important for them to get off to a good start, establish, you know, set a tone, establish a precedent, if you will, um, against the divisional opponents that are taking on early in the season. But, uh, yeah, it needs to be an uptick. Offensively, I mean, really the biggest question mark coming into the season was how the starting rotation would fare. And, I mean, interestingly enough, the I guess the, the starter who's done the worst so far is the is the one there were no questions about, Hendricks. So, because obviously he was not, not too great on opening day. But, you know, I mean, Trevor Williams pitched well uh, in his first Cubs start. Um, you know, Arietta uh, pitched well. You know, last night, um, Tuesday night, Alzali, uh got off to a rough start, but settled down and, you know, I mean, received no offensive support, obviously, but ended up putting together a respectable start when you consider uh, how bad is, is the first inning was, how he's able to settle down after that. Um and of course, Zach Davies also um, getting off to a solid start in his first appearance with the Cubs. But um, yeah, I mean, with that being said, the hitting has been uh, the number one concern. I mean, even the bullpen's been pretty good. So we've seen Alec Mills come out of the bullpen, and that's gone well so far. Kimbrel's look good. Um, Jason Adam has looked kind of shaky, but. You know, they, they, it seems like maybe they have a better bullpen than they've had in a few years now. So we'll have to see if that continues. Um, but, yeah, just, I mean, it's very simple. Just got to hit the ball, you know, just got to get on base, um, not relying too heavily on the the home run ball. And, um, yeah, it's going to have to go need to see an uptick in that department. 
And it's kind of funny how you bring up the starting pitching because that was actually going to be my next thing we talk about here. And um, I know everyone likes to say that spring training doesn't matter. The stats don't matter. The wins don't matter and things like that. And to their point, that is 100% accurate. The stats in spring training don't matter. The numbers in spring training don't matter. The wins and losses in spring training don't matter. But what does matter in spring training is the way players perform and how that carries over into the regular season. And if you look at how things have gone the first time through the Cubs rotation, it is, a, it is an exact replicate of how things went during the spring where the Cubs' three best pitchers during spring training were Zach Davies, Trevor Williams, and Jake Arrieta. And the Cubs' two worst pitchers during the spring training were Kyle Hendricks and either Elzelai or Alec Mills, whoever was handling that number five duty. And then first time through the rotation, same thing. Arietta goes six great innings. Davies goes five great innings and loses it a little bit in the sixth, but he still didn't pitch terrible. And then Trevor Williams pitches one of the best games of his career, his first time out against the Cubs. So it kind of followed the pattern. And I would even argue that Elzelai, you take away that first inning and really that one mistake that he made against Travis Shaw, he didn't pitch that terrible either. He only gave up one more run after that first inning. And if you go back to his final start against the Dodgers in spring training where he pitched outstanding, he's trending in the right direction. I'm, I might be one of the few people that is going to start to show some concerns on Kyle Hendricks, but I really am worried about Kyle Hendricks at this point. And the reason I say that is the guy's got a 3.07 career ERA as a starter, so he knows how to pitch. But the problem is the month of March and April, his ERA is a 4.96. So he's never gotten off to a great start in the month of April. But even with that being said, his spring trainings have always been very consistent and very good. And when you watch him this spring training, not only was he not locating his pitches, but he was not very good with his command all spring. He was elevating his pitches a lot during the spring and, that continued over against the Pirates, and that is definitely a concern that I have going forward for Hendricks, especially against Milwaukee again today, who has seen Kyle Hendricks enough to know what he likes to do, where if Hendricks doesn't start to kind of turn the corner and get back to the way he can pitch, I don't think the Cubs can afford to leave him as their ace long term. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. You know, they Hoyer traded away Darvish with the – idea in mind that Hendricks could be the true ace could could fill that void um and you know we'll have to see if he's able to step up and and do that but yeah off to a shaky start and you know I mean Hendricks is obviously pitched you know very well for the most part uh, these past few years and um you know, we'll just, uh, but this is now the first time the Cubs are relying on him to really lead the charge in that rotation. And, you know, that's a tall task, obviously. Um, but yeah, it is, it is certainly not, nothing to scoff at that he was rough out of the gate against a bad Pirates team. Um, hopefully, for his sake, he'll bounce back in his second start. Do you feel that uh, Shelby Miller should have been given the opportunity to, opportunity to make the team out of spring? I mean, he probably wasn't going to be a starter because the Cubs basically had 
six starting pitchers already and had to make a decision on it. But given the way that Shelby Miller pitched, I mean, I know the guy had a minor league contract, so it was easy to send him down. And a guy like Alec Mills was out of minor league options, so you had no choice but to at least put him on the major league roster. But I think Shelby Miller should have been given a chance to make this opening day roster, mainly because the Chicago Cubs elected to put Ryan Tapera on the opening day roster and nothing against Tapera. The guy pitched very well again with the Cubs last year, but he wasn't signed until about two or three weeks into spring training and only saw action. in I think four spring training games, as opposed to Shelby Miller seemed like he was pitching every other day. And I think adding a guy like Shelby Miller to the bullpen gives the Cubs that much more depth because it allows them to kind of use Alec Mills in different roles, like how he filled in for Craig Kimbrell on Monday night to get a save. And if you needed Mills to make a spot start for Elzelai, but then you also have a guy like Miller who can also get you innings in case Hendricks has another rough outing here today, or if a couple of their starters have rough outings down the road, you have another guy that can give you three, four innings. So you're not taxing your bullpen early on in the season. Yeah, I agree. It would have been nice to see him make the team. Um, you know, he could have been a, a worthwhile veteran to have out of the bullpen. Um, and like you've implied, could also serve as a as a spot starter if needed. Um, yeah, I would have liked to have seen that, uh, you know, especially considering, you know, some of the guys the Cubs still have in their bullpen. I, I'm not sure how effective they're ever going to be. Um you know, so yeah, it would have been nice to have somebody who's with proven success out of that bullpen, but you know, maybe he'll be up on the big league roster eventually. And then you have the Cubs who kind of got the Cubs, I wouldn't say got off to a fast start, but they've gotten off to a decent start. But then you have the White Sox who did not look very good against Anaheim last week, and the Angels really took it to the White Sox last week and taken three or four, but. I'm not going to take anything from the White Sox on that because I think the Angels are going to be one of the more improved teams in the American League this year, and it wouldn't shock me at all to see them not only make the playoffs but win the AL West to finally get Mike Trout back in the playoffs. But they've responded now with two straight wins against Seattle with the series finale coming up before getting a Kansas City team who actually looks to be a much improved team as well this weekend. Uh, we knew that the loss of Eloy Jimenez was going to be a very big blow to this team. And now with him being out five to six months, I'm pretty sure you can pencil him being out for the rest of the season. But the team itself still has plenty of firepower. And you know they're going to hit home runs. I mean, Jose Abreu won the American League MVP last year, and he's already off to a blistering start this year with two grand slams already this year. And it seems like he hasn't missed a beat. Tim Anderson is getting off to a slow start this year, but you know when he gets going, all he's going to do is hit the ball. What's going to seem like every single time he's up at the plate and having him at the top of your lineup is only going to jumpstart that lineup. Their starting pitching got much better this year with Lance Lynn and Carlos Rodon returned to the White Sox on a one-year deal and looked absolutely impressive Monday night. And then you have the bullpen with Liam Hendricks and Garrett Crochet and now Michael Kopech, who – typically would be in the starting rotation is actually in the bullpen right now. And I honestly think the White Sox should leave him there because he gives the White Sox another weapon out of that bullpen that literally can make this year's version of the Chicago White Sox, like the 2015 version of the Kansas city Royals, where you only need your starters to go five, maybe six innings. 
And then you can turn things over to Kopech, Crochet, and Hendricks in the final three innings. And if that's the case, White Sox are going to win a lot of games because I don't see too many teams getting hits off of those three out of the bullpen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, but, yeah, they didn't look too hot against the Angels. Only one, one of four in that series, but have now won two in a row over the Mariners. Um, yeah, I mean, losing Jimenez, you know, so late in spring training to a brutal injury, I mean, that's just – that's terrible. Um, and like you said, I mean, there's a chance he won't play at all this season the rest of the way, so – that's a huge blow to that team. Uh, but, you know, I mean, they have enough firepower in that batting order that they could potentially fill the void and, and be able to replace him. But, yeah, I mean, it's a grind. And obviously they have the talent to, you know, contend for a World Series. So shouldn't place too much stock in that Angel Series. Um, but, yeah, I mean – you know, some guys have gotten off to kind of slow starts, but should be able to get going. And, you know, I still think they're the team to beat in the AL Central. And I'm going to pose this question to you. Um, we saw back in 2017 when the Cubs acquired Jose Quintana from the White Sox, and the White Sox basically stole Jimenez and Dylan Cease from Chicago in the process. I, I don't mind Dylan Cease going to the White Sox mainly because he really hasn't been as consistent as I think the White Sox expected him to be, and he really hasn't lived up to his former top prospect billing. And, I mean, Eloy Jimenez, he's a great hitter, but to me he's a designated hitter. He's not a very good defender, and I think that injury that he suffered in spring training is going to make the White Sox front office realize that we need his bat in the lineup more than his glove in the field. So I would not be surprised to see him move permanently to the DH when he oh, comes yeah. back. But let's just let's just say the White Sox obviously are going to be in the position that we expect them to be in come July, and the Cubs are potentially either out of the race at that point or they're in a situation where they're not really going to add pieces, but they don't want to really subtract too much because they can still contend. Do you think the White Sox would maybe inquire with the Chicago Cubs about taking on some of their assets in return for prospects? Maybe like a guy like Jack Peterson to put him in left place to replace, obviously, Jimenez going after and getting kind of a couple other plate pieces, like maybe a Sogard or maybe a guy like David Bodie or something just to fill some of the holes? Or do you think the Cubs are going to be very reluctant to trade anybody away if they are within striking distance? Uh, that's really thinking a ways away. Um, but yeah, I mean, thinking ahead, you know, I'm obviously right now, I'm sure the Cubs are very much hoping that they'll still be in contention at the trade deadline, but if they're not, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Hoyer looks to make some moves. I mean, obviously the big names that will come up will be Bryant and Contreras, um, you know, heck, you may even hear Rizzo mention since the Cubs weren't able to come to an agreement with his camp on a contra- on a new contract. Um, but, yeah, I mean, whether or not they trade would trade with the White Sox, I mean, I don't know. I, based on what we've seen from Hoyer so far, I mean, heck, I don't expect him to be too reluctant to 
trade with anybody. Um, but yeah, I mean, that might be something that the White Sox look to do. Like you said, I mean, look, look at, um, Jock Peterson, you know, with Eloy Jimenez out with a torn pectoral muscle, which, you know, will be like a five, six month recovery at least. I mean, it's, you know, the chances of him returning at any point this season aren't great. So yeah, they might be looking to get a veteran left fielder out there to fill the void. Um, and since we're on that subtopic, I agree with you that I can only imagine that Jimenez's days playing left field are over. For those who might not know, he, he tore his pec, um, leaping to make a catch, to make a grab in, in left field, and this tore his pec, and obviously it required surgery. So, yeah, I mean, he I expect he'll be moved to um, – you know, designated hitter. I mean, I can imagine his days of playing the field are, are probably over. But anyhow, that you know, the White Sox could look to add a veteran left fielder such as Jock Peterson to fill the void. Um, but, yeah, for now, I mean, I'm sure the Cubs, you know, based on the moves Hoyer made late in the offseason, I mean, I think the expectation is that this team should be able to make the playoffs at the very least, but, you know, come the all-star break, if they're not sitting pretty and it looks like they're not going to have a great chance of of making it to the postseason or, you know, they're already out of contention in in the NL Central, whatever. Um, Yeah. I mean, Poyer could look to make some moves to sell some, sell off some big names at the uh, trade deadline. And thank you for bringing up the Anthony Rizzo point because I actually I actually did forget about that until you brought mm-hmm. that up. But to me, the contract that has been reported, obviously we don't know how accurate it is just because there really wasn't much out, outside of the reported amount. But if the actual contract extension for Anthony Rizzo was that five-year, $70 million deal, that is a big slap in the face to Anthony Rizzo. And honestly, it's a slap in the face to Cubs fans because that's less annually than what he's making right now. Even if you front load that contract and pay him a brunt of the money up front, it's still less than what he's making right now. And Rizzo gave Chicago the hometown discount the first time around with his contract, mainly because he was an unproven rookie or an unproven player at that point. So nobody knew what they were really going to get out of him. but there's no reason at all that he shouldn't be taking a hometown discount. And even at 31 going on 32 years old, to me, he's still worth at least 20 million a year. So if the Cubs best offer to him is five years of 70 million, you might as well kiss him goodbye. Cause you know, you know, he's not going to take that deal and you know, he's going to go somewhere else and get that deal. And if I was Rizzo, I'd be very upset with the front office presenting me that contract. Yeah, and I mean, I I think he was pretty upset, to be honest, based on the comments he made um, to the media. You know, obviously it's a it's an issue you'd have with the front office, so it's not something that would cause any internal issues in the clubhouse. But, yeah, I mean, if they're offering him, you know, $14 million a year, um, which at one point in time for, you know, a veteran first baseman was obviously a whole lot of money. But, you know, at this point in time in, in Major League Baseball, that's not 
all that much. Um, and when we're talking about arguably the best defensive first baseman in baseball has been for several years, arguably, and, you know, a, a consistent um, force to be reckoned with in the lineup. Uh, yeah, it's not great. Um, it's not a great offer. So, yeah, you probably you probably should prepare if you're a Cubs fan for, you know. I mean, you should really prepare. I almost hate to say this because we're just now starting off a season, you know. Let's just say if the season doesn't go really well this year, you should prepare on a lot of familiar faces potentially departing the, the Cubs, you know, over the course of the – maybe at the trade deadline, but definitely over the course of the off season, the upcoming off season. But um, yeah, I mean, that wasn't a, that wasn't a great offer. I mean, you know, I mean, I know Rizzo is not exactly, he hasn't exactly been a beast offensively in, in recent seasons, you know, in terms of consistency. I mean, he hasn't made an all-star team since 2016, but, you know, and which is also the same year he won his lone silver slugger award. But um yeah, I mean it's it just wasn't too great of an offer. I can't necessarily blame Hoyer too too much for sort of maybe seemingly lowballing the offer, but I can understand where Rizzo's coming from and yeah, I mean it it'll be tough to see him leave, but you know, if the offer he he gets isn't gonna get any better than that. Um, then, you know, maybe it should be expected that he will depart, but maybe he'll have a great 2021 season and it'll warrant a bigger contract offer. If seven, I guess if 70 million was the best that the Cubs are going to give him at this point, then why go five years on it? Why not go three years on it for $70 million? Because it was reported that even with that five-year, $70 million deal, they were going to front-load the first three years of that contract and give him the most possible money that he can get in that first three years. So if that's the case, well, why not just give him like a three-year, $70 million contract anyways, take him to his age 35 season, and then worry about it after that because then he's at least getting his – $20 million a year that he wants, you're probably going to get the three remaining like all-star caliber seasons out of him. And once he gets to that age 35, who knows what you're going to get out of him, especially with the lingering back issues that he's had in his career. But if he's only got three years left, lock him up for those three years, get what you can get out of him and worry about it after that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, also, I mean, yeah, he's, he's going to turn 32 in August, so he's no spring chicken. So, you know, it, offering him a contract that would last until his late thirties. I mean, that's, yeah, it's, that's pretty steep. You know, you have to wonder why they wouldn't Hoyer wouldn't just offer him a, a shorter term deal. Um, but you know, that's, it's off the table for now. So we'll have to just wait and see if, if what the uh, contract negotiations are like in the off season, I guess. Exactly. And I will switch over to the NBA side of things where the Chicago Bulls picked a horrible time to go on their longest losing streak of the season. They went Owens. Well, they started, they went Owens six on a basic West trip where they faced six playoff teams, including the Utah Jazz and Phoenix Suns, who have the top two records in the Western Conference. 
granted they were very competitive in both of those games. They still ended those games with losses, which obviously doesn't help. They did respond, however, on a big way on Sunday by beating the East-leading Brooklyn Nets at home. I know Brooklyn was down, I believe, James Harden and Kevin Durant that game, so they didn't beat the Nets at full strength, but at least getting that win kind of got their confidence back. Then they took on an Indiana team who they absolutely obliterated on Tuesday night. And now this is that stretch of games that we talked about where the Bulls are now in a seven-game stretch where they realistically should be able to win five or six, if not all seven of these games. And they are the 10th seed in the Eastern Conference right now. So if the playoffs were to start today, they would be in despite that six-game losing streak. But I'm going to go out on a limb right now and say this. Barring an epic collapse the next month or so, I think it's safe to say the Bulls are going to make the playoffs this year, mainly because I think the Toronto Raptors are toast at this point. They lost so much from the past couple of years. I think it's just starting to get to them now, and I don't see them being able to recover. And then Washington, Cleveland, Detroit, and Orlando, who are the four teams behind Toronto, really have no shot at catching Chicago or really anybody else at this point. So as long as Chicago can play 500 basketball or better for the rest of the season, I think it's safe to say that they can make the playoffs. And if they do get hot during this stretch that we talked about, they can potentially move up into that fifth and sixth seed spot in the Eastern Conference and avoid the play-in tournament at the end of the season. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And that should should be the goal. Um, I guess we haven't been on air since the trade deadline, so got to give the Bulls a shout-out for making some big moves, getting Vucevic from – um, and Alf and Aminu from uh, the Magic. But yeah, Vucevic, obviously, you know, arguably one of the one of the most underrated players in the league because he's been stuck with the Magic for so long. You know, kind of a mediocre Magic team for so long. Also, they also traded, and obviously, uh, Wendell Carter and Otto Porter Jr. and two first round picks were used uh, in that deal. And then the Bulls also traded Daniel Gafford and Chandler Hutchinson to the Wizards to get Troy Brown Jr. and Mo Wagner. So, um, oh, and also they then flipped Wagner to the Celtics for Daniel Tice, as um, you know, he he's a real scrappy. Tice is a scrappy big man down low oh, who nice. can really you know bring in on the defensive end and also a solid. Um, a solid rebounder as well. So, uh, yeah, the Bulls went in and, and made some pretty big moves. Obviously, Vucevic um, is is the big move that could uh, make a huge difference. But, yeah, I mean, having him in tow there in Chicago is, is awesome. But, yeah, I mean, as for, you know, how the Bulls have, have fared recently and how things are stacking up, um, unfortunately, they didn't use – any of that momentum from the big the splashes they made at the trade deadline to to really convert that into some wins uh lost pretty handily after that to i mean i guess since the day we were on air they lost at home to the Cavs, and since the trade deadline lost at the spurs at the warriors at the suns at the jazz uh then were able like you said to beat the nets at home 
and last night, Tuesday night, won comfortably at Indiana. So at least they've kind of turned things around. But, yeah, it was looking kind of rough out uh, in late at the end of March. But, um, yeah, Vucevic, it's blended in well. Um, you know, really been lighting it up in, in, a, in several games so far. He and Levine really leading the way for this team. And, uh, yeah, now they get a, Raptor, a Raptors team that they should be able to beat. But, yeah, I mean, the Bulls, based on what they did at the trade deadline, I mean, they should be thinking pretty, you know, lofty expectations as far as what they can accomplish come postseason time, um, come playoff time. And, you know, the postseason will be here before you know it. So for them to establish a winning rhythm right now is important. Um, and, yeah, I mean, if they can potentially look to avoid the avoid – the, um, de facto play in tournament, then uh they should certainly jump at that opportunity. And the way I see things right now is the Bulls certainly won the trade deadline. Obviously they had they made the best move of any of the teams that made a trade during the trade deadline by getting Vucevic. And not only does that make the team better this year, but it makes them better long term because Vucevic is still locked up for yeah. two more years after this year. Not only do you have Zach Levine to build around, but now you have Zach Levine and Vucevic to build around. And since Vucevic has actually gotten to Chicago, the offense is actually running through him more now and running through Levine less, which actually I think is a good thing for Levine because more teams are going to have to focus on Vucevic, which is going to leave Levine open for more shots, and that's going to help him offensively. Adding guys like Trey Brown and uh, Daniel Tice to the bench, I think makes that unit a lot better. I love Tice as a player. He's one. Of, he reminds me a lot of Dennis Rodman in terms of mm-hmm. what he does. Obviously, he's a more offensively gifted, but just the way he attacks the boards and just kind of does all the dirty things, he reminds me of that type of player. I think Brown has the potential to be kind of what Otto Porter Jr. was with the Chicago Bulls, where – He's not going to be a starter, but he's going to be a guy that can give you minutes off the bench and certainly can knock down shots when you give him the opportunity. But that all this is going to come back to Laurie Markkinen, like we've talked about in the past, and what his future with Chicago actually is. And both of us have said that we think Markkinen should be back in Chicago just because of what he brings to the table. He's a seven-footer who can stretch the floor and knock down threes, but – so is Vucevic. Vucevic is also a seven-footer that can knock down threes, and he does a lot more both offensively and defensively than Markkanen does. I would love to see Chicago reach a deal with Markkanen where he can come off the bench with Kobe White like he does now because I think that makes the Bulls a much deeper team. But I think the Bulls' primary focus next year is going to be finding a true point guard to run the offense. And if that's the case, I don't see Markkanen coming back. And realistically, I don't see him back anyways unless he's going to be a starter. And the only way that happens is if Thaddeus Young and Chicago decide to part ways at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, You know, obviously having Vucevic in the fold changes things as far as, you know, the importance of marking into that team. But, yeah, I still think that he's really the X factor for that team and, and what they're capable of. So, will be important to see him make an impact down the stretch and obviously in the postseason should the Bulls get there. Uh, 
But yeah, I mean, getting Vucevic was huge. That was a huge move. Um, arguably the biggest trade the Bulls have pulled off in years. And, you know, I mean, it proves that this team is is already in win-now mode. Um, you know, this core group has clicked under Billy Donovan to the point that the front office, I think, was comfortable making those moves at the trade deadline because, you know, they know that this team is capable of making some noise in the playoffs and they don't have to wait until next season to do so. So that's obviously a, a move in the right direction, a step in the right direction for this Bulls team that's just looking to get back to, you know, uh, how how good they were uh, when Derrick Rose was in his prime in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And uh, just look back to look to get back to making some noise uh, come playoff time. And just like the Chicago Bulls, you have the Blackhawks who are continuing to fight for a playoff spot in their own right, except things have gone south for that team the last couple of weeks. And they got off to a very slow start to start the season. And then for basically the next month, maybe – a month and a week or so, they were probably playing the best hockey of anybody in the Central Division. And at one point, they got into first place in the Central. But then they got into that stretch of games where they saw everybody or saw nobody but Florida, Carolina, and Tampa, who are the three best teams in the Eastern Conference. Chicago struggled to get points against them and fell to fourth place in the standings. Now they struggled to beat Nashville, losing two games to Nashville. So now Nashville has actually overtaken – Chicago for that final playoff spot in the Central Division. Blackhawks are currently sitting in fifth place at 41 points. They're three points ahead of Columbus, two points ahead of Nashville. But they've reached that stretch of games that we continue to talk about, where this is that nine or ten game stretch where all the opponents they are going to see are behind them in the standings. And knowing that they have games with Tampa Bay, Florida, and uh, Carolina coming up to end the season, this is the stretch of games that Chicago needs to bank as many points as possible because they know those final two weeks of the season are not going to be easy. And basically, I would say that the next three weeks are going to dictate whether Chicago makes the playoffs. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, they got off on a on a good – start there to racking up points in the stretch by beating the Stars 4-2 last night, Tuesday night. So um, we'll see if they can repeat uh, by beating the Stars on Thursday night. But, yeah, got Blue Jackets, Red Wings, Predators coming up. Um, And, yeah, they should look to, um, you know, be able to, to rack up as many points as they can in, in those games, obviously taking on each of them two times. Because, um, yeah, the schedule down the stretch is rough. And, you know, at this point in the season, it's all about it's all about just getting points where you can. So um, I totally agree. I mean, that'll, that could essentially make or break whether or not this team just kind of goes by the wayside down the stretch or is in the thick of a playoff hunt, how they fare these next couple weeks. And the way I see it, I think the success that Chicago has the next couple weeks ultimately falls on the shoulders of Kevin Lankinen. And you and I continue to talk about 
the way he's played all year and kind of how he's basically come out of nowhere and has taken over the number one goaltending job and has done a phenomenal job at it. I mean, he's had a couple hiccups here and there, but I think a lot of those hiccups had to do with the quality opponents that Chicago was seeing during that time, plus being overworked because it seemed like he was starting every single day for like 15 or 16 games in a row. And knowing that Chicago still has games with Tampa Bay, Florida, and Carolina to close out the season, I think this stretch of games is a chance for them to give Lankinen a bit of a break without completely sitting him, getting Subban a little bit more action to keep Subban fresh. But then in the long run, that keeps Lankinen fresh for when they need him most. And as long as the offense can continue to score three goals, maybe four goals a game, I think Subban's good enough to come in and pick up some points here, which in returns allows Lankinen to not only be fresh for the rest of this season, but obviously for the postseason if they get that part. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, they, they should look to get Subban. Blackhawks should look to get Subban some more playing time. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Lankinen's still the guy. Uh, I think he'll, he's still their best bet to serve as, you know, their, their uh, primary goalie come playoff time should they get there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, you know, you, you do have to wonder how they'll – Factor in Subban into the into the equation, and um, whether or not you know Lankinen should should get some rest here in some of these games. Uh, yeah, a lot a lot for them to think about because you know, like we said, they need as many points as possible these next couple weeks. And we'll switch over to our final topic of the day today, which is the NFL and. We're kind of in that little the downtime of the NFL offseason where free agency, it, it's obviously still going on. It's going on until the regular season starts at this point. But the busy part of free agency is now over, and you'll hear a couple signings from here and there, but the major names have already signed. But now you get to focus on the NFL draft, which is taking place at the end of, end of April. So this is kind of the time of the year where you'll start to hear a lot more draft rumors in terms of, who teams are looking at. You'll start to see more mock drafts. You'll start to see draft day trades and this and that. And regarding the Chicago Bears and their situation right now, obviously we know they have a first-round pick. They pick, I believe, 20th overall in the first round. Uh, You and I, and I'm pretty sure 99% of the people that follow the Bears expect the Bears to go offensive line in the first round, which is what they really should do. And I've I've said they should target maybe a – quarterback in round two or round three at least get offensive line help in the first round and then kind of get your quarterback of the future in the second or third round Kyle Trask is now a name that is starting to pop up with Chicago as he's actually been working out with Carson Wentz Andy Dalton Jared Goff and a lot of instructors that have worked with Andy Dalton in the past so it's kind of intriguing to see Dalton working with a college quarterback that potentially could end up being his teammate this season and beyond. And then you have another name in guys like Kellen Mond, who not only seems to be a target for the Bears, but Kellen Mond actually loves what he sees in the Bears. And I guess when they went to go visit him during the Texas A&M Pro Day a couple weeks ago, he said he had a great chemistry with John Filippo and the scouts that were in attendance. He had 
great interviews with the Bears front office, and he just has a great connection that he feels with the Bears front office as opposed to some of the other teams that he's met with. And for the first time in a long time, there is a college quarterback that actually wants to come to Chicago, and there's a college quarterback that actually wants to come to Chicago and prove that he is the answer for Chicago's quarterback struggles. And if Kellen Mond is available in the second or third round, I think he is a perfect pick for the Bears to go with as their quarterback because he is a young project that can sit behind Andy Dalton for a year. Plus, he's a dual-threat quarterback, which is something the Bears have really never had. I mean, Trubisky showed signs of that at times, but he never put it to good, put it to the full use that he should have. And Mond is one of those rare cases that he's a four-year starter, and he's a four-year starter in the toughest conference in the country. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's, you know, that's something that um, definitely behooves the Bears, uh, you know, and something to look forward to. But, you know, and another question mark that's come up since we were last on air is, is you know, we were talking all this time about how, um, you know, Mitch Trubisky would have fared – had Bill Lazor been the primary um, play caller for the entire 2020 season. Well, now, I mean, I guess since we were last on air, Matt Nagy announcing that he'll retake, resume calling the plays this coming season. And the Bears have already since declared as well that Andy Dalton is uh, the tried and true starter, posted about it on Twitter. The Bears did declaring him the number one QB. So uh, we're going to, have to see how that works out. I mean, no, doesn't appear like there will be any quarterback competition whatsoever heading into training camp. And also Nagy's back calling the plays. So um, best of luck to Andy Dalton there. And, you know, hopefully that works out for everybody involved. But yeah, I mean, you know, I can expect that the Bears will look to go offensive line in the first round as they should, but as far as, <clears throat> you know, whether or not they go after a potential quarterback of the future, um, maybe go after a guy like Kellen Mond, who's arguably underrated, um, obviously had a tremendous career at Tex Texas A&M, one of the best quarterbacks in the history of that program. Um you know, that could be that could be huge. So um they could could pay dividends for years to come. So I would still recommend they go offensive line first round, but yeah, could maybe target a quarterback in the second round. I agree. Um sticking with quarterback talk for a minute here. A couple things have really developed in really the past 72 hours that potentially could affect the bears, but also could affect the NFL draft as a whole. Uh, one of those situations is in Carolina where a lot of people expected the Panthers to target Justin Fields or Trey Lance or somebody of that caliber with their number eight pick in the first round. And here Carolina is trading for Sam Darnold who all of a sudden Sam Darnold is going to be with Teddy Bridgewater in Carolina. So the question now is, is it going to be Sam Darnold and Teddy Bridgewater competing for the starting job or is Carolina willing to move on from Teddy Bridgewater, stick with Sam Darnold this year and still draft a possible franchise quarterback after that? If that's the case, 
I would love to see Chicago go after Teddy Bridgewater and release, obviously, Nick Foles, given that Andy Dalton only has one year on his deal and Teddy Bridgewater has two. If Dalton goes down and gets hurt, I would rather have Teddy Bridgewater as the backup than Nick Foles as the backup, especially because Bridgewater is a bit more mobile. Let me get your thoughts on that before I go with the second point that I have to make. Uh, yeah, I mean, Bridgewater, I can imagine that the Panthers are looking to move him. I read that they're even giving him some sort of leeway to, you know, talk with potential suitors and kind of direct, you know, the Panthers trade talks there just out of respect for him and, you know, what he did for the team this past season as a starting quarterback. They're kind of letting him have a say in where he could potentially end up. So, yeah, I wouldn't imagine there will be a quarterback competition there. I think the Panthers are bringing in Darnold to be the guy, the number one guy for sure. Um, so I expect Bridgewater will be on a new team, you know, in, in the near future, I, I could imagine. So, yeah, if the Bears were able to bring him in, I mean, that would certainly be somebody who could give – you know, Dalton, the kick in the pants, so to speak, and could potentially compete for that number one spot, if not um, in the preseason, if not in training camp or the preseason, then uh, throughout the regular season, should Dalton struggle. Um, you know, obviously Bridgewater has, all things considered, put together a better body of work than Nick Foles in recent years. Obviously, Foles with his you know magical Super Bowl run kind of skews things, but you know if you take that out of the equation, I mean Bridgewater's been more of a proven starting quarterback in recent seasons. So yeah, that would be an upgrade to me, uh, Bridgewater over Foles. Um, you know, we'll just have to see. I mean, Ryan Pace is an enigma regarding what he's going to do. Um, you know, obviously it seems like at this point, since we're talking about quarterbacks, it looks like Russell Wilson is going to be back in the fold as the Seahawks quarterback. Those trade talks just kind of fell apart. And then obviously Deshaun Watson seems to be in a world of trouble right now. So can't imagine uh, there will be any trade talks um, concerning him at, at any point in the near future. So, uh, yeah, I mean – you know, with that being said, Bridgewater is maybe the biggest name out there on the trade market right now for as far as quarterbacks are concerned. So if Pace were able to pull the trigger there and get something done to, you know, replace Folds, essentially to essentially replace Folds with Bridgewater as Dalton's backup, um, yeah, I would be all in favor of that. And even if they were able to bring in Bridgewater, they might have they might have to reconsider making Dalton the you know, unquestioned number one starter, number one quarterback uh, heading into training camp. So just have to wait with bated breath and see how that plays out. And then another team that was reportedly rumored to be focusing on quarterback help this draft was the Atlanta Falcons, who have the number four pick in the draft, I believe. And most people thought that it was Zach Wilson that was going to end up in Atlanta. Well, all of a sudden, Atlanta has now said they are willing to trade the number four pick, which to me is extremely shocking that they would even consider that. But that also kind of shows that they may be committed to 
Matt Ryan a little bit longer than many people expected, especially when you have Arthur Smith and that new coaching staff coming in this season. Maybe they see something in Matt Ryan that some other people didn't. But if Atlanta is really fielding offers to trade out of that number four spot, would you like to see the Bears possibly figure out a way to get that number four pick? And obviously offensive line help is a big thing. But if the Bears got the number four pick, you know they're going to go after a quarterback in that spot, which it's probably going to end up being Justin Fields or Zach Wilson, depending on who goes two and who doesn't go number two. But if the Bears can figure out a way to make this happen with Atlanta and possibly trade for that number four pick, do you want to do you want Chicago to do it or do you want Chicago to stay at number 20 and just try to build? I'll be honest, I kind of like them staying at 20. Um you know, I mean, if they were able to move up, I mean, they might have to give up a lot. And I don't know. I, I just kind of like the idea of getting a good offensive lineman in the first round and maybe rocking with Dalton for a year and just sort of seeing what they can do this year and then maybe looking to get a franchise quarterback, um, whether it's via draft or free agency or trade next offseason. Um, because, you know, clearly, I mean, the Bears would have liked to have gotten a bigger name quarterback than than Andy Dalton. And, you know, you can make the case that outside of obviously Trevor Lawrence, who would go number one overall, there really might not be a true game-changing, you know, franchise-altering quarterback in this year's draft. I mean, even though there are several really talented quarterbacks, obviously, who could prove to be that, there aren't really any guarantees there outside of you know you'd expect that Lawrence is a guarantee so I kind of like them staying where they are I don't want to want them to have to give up too much um just to move up to be able to draft a, a quarterback I mean you know I really think getting a good offensive lineman is very very important in this year's draft. okay what about what about moving up to number four and then drafting a guy like Penny Sawall or yeah, yeah, another top true. offensive tackle at number four and possibly trying to trade back up and true. maybe take a quarterback at the late stage? And who knows? Maybe we're giving Ryan Pace too much credit. Maybe he wouldn't be able to pull that off. But, yeah, if he could do something like that, that would be awesome for sure. But, um, you know, as for now, I'm kind of content with where they are. But, yeah, if they were able to make – you know, Pace was able to work some magic and uh, find a way to move up and, you know, also and have the opportunity to get a great offensive lineman and still have a chance to get a quarterback at a decent position. And uh, that would be, that would be awesome. But at this point, maybe just the pipe dream, but we'll have to wait and see. That's all the time Cole and I have for you today. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, while we were talking, I saw Tim enough. Anderson has been placed on the IL with a hamstring injury, so that's not ideal. Obviously, you mentioned that he got off to kind of a shaky start, so now he'll be out for a little bit. Um, also, from uh, some college basketball, as far as some college basketball news and notes, uh, DePaul has since since we've been on air. Obviously, it's been two weeks. Uh, DePaul has since hired a new head coach to replace Dave Lado. 
and Tony Stubblefield, who was a, an assistant under Dane Allman at Oregon for over a decade. So that's a, that seems to be a good hire. Um, also looking at Notre Dame, it looked like Juwan Durham might come back for a, for another season, but, um, he's heading professional. He's turning pro pursuing pro opportunities. Um, and also they're, uh, in one of their captains, um, they're a guard, a, a star guard and captain for them. Nick Jogo is exploring a graduate transfer. So, so far, not a, not an awesome off season for Notre Dame losing, um, one of their, you know, two of their starters and, you know, a, a, their best big man in Durham and, uh, one of their top guards in Jogo. And then also since we were last on air, Northwestern women's basketball was still in the, um, NCAA tournament. Uh, they had a pretty, pretty good, pretty big lead over Louisville. Um, but two-seeded Louisville came back and won by nine over seven-seeded Northwestern in the second round there, uh, ending Northwestern season, which was a good season. Um, maybe the men's team, which appears to be hanging on to Chris Collins for another year, maybe they can channel uh, the energy from the women's team heading into next season and and um, and have a bounce-back year. So shout-out to – the Lady Wildcats and their great season and getting a second round in the NCAA tournament. That's all the time Cole and I have for you today. Uh, we'll be back next week. Should be normal time unless one of us has something going on, but I don't believe so at this point. But until next week, uh, take care, Chicago fans. Enjoy. A full slate of sports right, over the man. next Talk week. And Cole will be in touch next week.